I still can't believe how many real penguins they actually used for this film. Movie Chumps, episode 187, Batman Returns. Let's get after it. I've been down here too long. It's time for me to ascend. From the sewers of Gotham, a new villain emerges. You didn't invite me, so I crashed! From the rooftops of Gotham, the perfect enemy comes to life. save this city is a creature of the night. Hey, stud. I thought we had something together. We do. While she craves a romance she can sink her claws into. You can't into a girl. He plots a foul reign of destruction. My dear penguins, thanks to Batman, the time has come to punish all of Gotham! The Bat, the Cat, the Penguin. Gotta adore that tagline. One of many that graced the posters of this 1992 action adventure. Michael Keaton returns for Batman Returns. A fun film, Corey, to revisit. Luke, you're just the pussy I've been looking for. Uh, Yes, fantastic and honestly low-key one of the most unorthodox Christmas movies, I think. I absolutely believe that this is a Christmas movie. It definitely sat around Christmas. Like, Christmas permeates this entire movie, whether it's Christmas lighting, you know, lighting of the tree, you know, goodwill toward men, you know, at the end and all that stuff. Goodwill toward men. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, is like, and by the way. And women. I'm getting a little sick of the whole, like, Die Hard's a Christmas movie thing. It's like, okay, yeah, we get it. Do you have any other interesting takes? That's about as interesting as, like, when people put Coffee Addict in their profile. It's like, ooh, fascinating. It's Movie Chumps, Luke Mayo and Corey Cook. Thanks for joining us, ladies and gents. We would be remiss if we didn't begin this pod with a Christopher Walken impression for old time's sake. Power surplus, Bruce. Ha ha, no such thing. Christmas time. The penguin is the man. I feel like this might have been one of the first Christopher Walken as cartoonish Christopher Walken performances. It really was. This is where we really get that Walkenism type stuff here in this one. Mayors can be recalled. Creepy outfit. I liked his look, though. Matt Shrek. 
Shrek. Yeah, that's yes. it. Uh, hey, coming up in the broadcast, resurrecting Jimmy Stewart, Nicholas Cage retiring, Robert Downey Jr. returning as Iron Man. We've got semi-answers for all these questions. But first, speaking of questions, it's time for five questions, a weekly uh, thing. All right, first question. Who would you want to play Robin in a potential upcoming Batman movie and why? You son of a bitch. That's a good one. I feel like we've had a similar one to that. This one, Chris O'Donnell. No. Why did I go Tom Hardy first? There's no way he's a no Robin. That is a terrible choice. Like, I usually don't say that's a bad choice, but that's a bad choice. <laughs> I'm going, the usual suspects would probably be Timothy Chalamet. There you go. Freaking Nicholas Holt, but he's too tall. That wouldn't work. Um, too old, too. Who's the dude I liked from uh, After Sun? What's his name? Paul Mescal? Yeah. Hmm. But you got any, you need like kind of young people. I still want to see. Yeah, I still want to see uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Mm. I think, like, Ben Wolfhard would be an interesting choice. Oh, yeah. Okay. Kinda, he kind of has to bulk up a little bit. And um, I believe I'd, I'd have to look up his what his actual name is because I'm going to recommend it later in the pod. But um, the kid, the guy who was just in The Holdovers that played uh, the, the oh. Angus, Angus, was, Angus Tully was his name. Okay. Um, it feels like they're afraid to pull in the Robin that they've been afraid ever since Chris O'Donnell did it. I don't know what the, the re- reasoning behind it is. I mean, I know we're, we're going to be getting one when we do Batman Brave and Bold. We're going to be getting Damien Wayne's Robin. But it feels like they've been scared to pull the trigger on Dick Grayson for, like, years now. Yeah, I think it has something to do with Batman. We've all kind of just accepted him, not even as Vigilante. We just kind of see him as Batman. I think with the Robin character, we're more... It's harder to believe in a weird way because there hasn't been that many. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's almost like the stereotypical sidekick that we've yeah. talked about so many times over the decades. He, he like, is, he's the he Robin to this person's Batman. It's like, this yeah. is the Robin to Batman. This is it. Yeah. This is the, this is side the actual kick. Robin. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if that maybe intimidates people. Then it's like, you got the whole, you know, the, the ambiguously gay duo kind of throw a monkey <laughs> wrench into the system. God, cartoon is great. It's so funny. Did, um, yeah. I don't know if he comes across as like too much of a, I don't know, like a pony boy from outsiders. I don't know the reason. It's it, it's it, there's something there though. All right. Question two: uh, Would you rather be a snowboarding superstar or a skiing superstar? Probably snowboarding. I also feel like I would survive better chances of surviving. It always seemed like fun if you could just figure it out. Skiing, just I went one time at Bristol with some mm-hmm. buddies. They talked me into, and they were all like kind of pros. And it scared the heck out of me, man. I felt like I couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't steering the right way. So that spooks me. So I think with um, snowboarding at least, and it's a little bit more sexier than skiing, or I feel like skiing, it's like, eh, everybody's good at skiing. Except yeah, I, I've never tried downhill skiing. I've never tried snowboarding because I just don't have great balance. Like I've tried skateboarding, fall. It just I've tried roller skating, fall constantly, can never get it right. Um, when I you got your go- feet in skis, I, they're all over the place. Like it's yeah. hard to control. Well, even when I did rollerblading, you can ask Ken sometime who's been on this pod before. I, it was like more like roller walking. <laughs> just, <laughs> I, I just, that was not, that was not in the genetic, uh, code that was written into my DNA when I was born. So fair enough. Um, we'll blame uh, genetics. Question three. Would you rather drink eggnog with every meal for a month or hot cocoa every meal for a year? eggnog for a month when in doubt go with the shorter time frame 
That's my theory. I have got to go with Coco because I like Coco better. And I'm just like, I could not deal with having eggnog for two days every meal. I, I couldn't do it. Like, I like eggnog on a, it, in occasional bits, but uh, in sample size, but not for a full month. Wait, I caveat. Can, can I also drink? Can I also have a soda with my meal? Or does it like have to be? No, it, it's you can drink water to survive. But other than that, it's just eggnog every single meal. Darn it, man. I got to stick with the nog, but holy smokes, is that going to put on the pounds? I just made it tougher, didn't you? All right. Question four. Assuming you are at your physical and mental peak, so now, how long, how long do you think you would last in the world of Mad Max? How long? I think I would do, I think I would do remarkably well in that okay. world. I feel like I get along with a lot of people. I don't feel like I'm an intimidating presence. So you can't put a time on it? I'll go like, starting like, now. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go 10 years. I feel 10. like I could, I feel like I could, I've read enough Machiavelli. I can figure it. I'll figure it out. Dude. Um, I probably, even at my peak, I probably last a week. Dude. I, I'm more Joe would just, or Lord humongous or somebody would take my ass out. And like, I, I, I would, I would get into the Thunderdome, piss shit myself. And it's like, well, <laughs> it's nice knowing y'all. Um, I don't know so, what route I'd go. Like the jester, would I try to be like a diplomat? Oh, you'd absolutely be the jester. Uh, yeah, I think I'd have to. Maybe yeah. the diplomat. Right. So we'll see. Diplomat. Jester diplomat. So, yeah, you just be the jester, man. We've got three guys with ski masks on. It's fine. They're off. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Five. Last question. You get you get to have a small speaking role in one and only one of the five following franchises: Star Wars, Star Trek, Lord of the Rings. Mad Max or Harry Potter? Which one do you choose? I, I got to go Star Wars. Okay. It's, it's too much. It's too much for me. Just to say I was in Star Wars. Absolutely. One small speaking role. Star Wars. One small speaking role. Yep. Gotta go Lord of the Rings. I was torn between that and Star Trek, but I got You'd get better lines in Lord of the Rings. You probably would. Yeah. Star Wars, it would be cool just to be in it, but I'd probably yes. get a shit line and I'd really have to. I'd really have to muscle through it and bring a little, add a little sauce to it. A little spice. Yeah, a little spice, a little dune spice. Hey, right. those five questions, five questions, outstanding, man. Those were fun. Some good ones. Thanks, sir. Now it is time for headlines. Let's go to press. Holland is game for returning as Spider-Man, but there's a catch. If you watch Spider-Man No Way Home, kind of left it open-ended uh, in that he's basically turned into what Spider-Man always started out to be, which was your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Everybody pretty much has forgotten who he is. Um, and there's been talks about, is he going to come back for Spider-Man 4? And it's kind of been a hit, will he, won't he thing for a couple years now. And he was uh, recently speaking to Collider uh, during a press conference for Critics' Choice Association, and he says, all I can say is that we have been actively engaging in conversations about what it could, could, could potentially look like for a fourth rendition of my character. Whether or not we can find a way to do justice to the character is another thing. I feel very protective over Spider-Man. I feel very, very lucky that we are able to work on a franchise that got better with each movie, that got more successful with each movie, which I think is really rare. And I want to protect this, his legacy. So I won't make another one 
for the sake of making another one, it will have to be worth the while of the character. Um, for what it's worth, I think he will make one more. And I think like this is honestly going to be the handoff to a, a live-action Miles Morales. Um, and I think he's going to hang it up. We're due for the Miles Morales thing. Yes. We need a little something different. Holland was great, but we got to. I, I want. I want some variety here. Not that we Same. haven't had variety in the last freaking twenty years. Holy that's smokes! That's true. Here's one that's open to interpretation. No more messages for Disney films. That's a goal for Mouse House Hotshot Robert Iger. So basically, Bob Iger was recently speaking. He was pretty much talking. Uh, he was at uh, speaking at the New York Times Deal Book Summit. Um, and he basically wanted to say, said that he wanted to redirect much of their focus on telling good stories and entertaining rather than having messages um, down their throats. It's a notable switch from his comments when he spoke last November, when he said this company has been telling stories for 100 years. And those stories have had a meaningful, positive impact on the world. And one of the reasons they've had meaningful, positive impact is because one of the core values of our storytelling is inclusion and acceptance and tolerance. And we can't lose that. I don't think when you're telling stories and attempting to be a good citizen of the world that that's political. So I don't necessarily think that his perspective has changed. I think the thing is, is that at the end of the day, these movies aren't making money right now. Um, and they just posted some of the losses that, Disney got this year as a whole, and it's something like over a billion dollars with all, all the monies and, and all the movies and told that they've lost. Um, and I think that, listen, there is nothing wrong with having in a message in a movie as long as it's organic. Like, I always felt that the Guardians of the Galaxy really stressed all three films the idea of compassion uh, for your fellow, you know, entity, whether they be a human being or a or rocket raccoon. Um, and the kindness in this world, in a world of cynicism, is important. I think the thing is that the message can't be your starting point. That can't be right. the, the, the because if, if that's the case, and I've said this before, then you're telling me what to think. You're not giving me something to think about. And there's a key difference between those two. The message, if it's going to be in the movie, it has to come organically, and it can't be some virtual signal, virtual signal where it's just beating us over the head. Um, and I'm all for inclusion and stuff. I really am. And you have to temper that as well with not saying, okay, are we just checking a box? Are we doing this just to be doing it? Like, for example, I guess I haven't watched it yet, but the latest Doctor Who special, they've got a black man playing Sir, Sir Isaac Newton. And I don't really have a big problem with that, even though it's not historically accurate, because God knows that Doctor Who's characters in history have done all kinds of crazy things. But what's the reasoning behind that? Are we doing that? just to do it are we doing it because that person was the best actor for that role like and the fact that i have was that recent i don't i'm surprised i haven't seen the controversy it came out on saturday um but the but the fact that we're even that i'm even voicing these questions um i think says something and listen i you know it's like i i don't mind it's not a it's not a big deal to me but I think we really need to reassess like where we're at in terms of telling stories, especially in, in, in movies, because people are, are going to come out to and pay to see films that have messages in them. Barbie had a very clear message. Oppenheimer had a very clear message. But I don't think that that overwhelmed the, the greatness and the story that was behind You were it. never distracted by it. Exactly. And that, I think, right or wrong, is the, is the mentality and the attitude 
that I think a lot of audiences kind of have right now. And so I kind of see where Bob Iger is coming from. The bottom line is this. There needs to com- be a complete reevaluation of the industry right now. When, and it starts first and foremost with, uh, you know, with budgets. You know, there's, I loved Indiana Jones and Dial Destiny. There's no good God reason that that movie deserved to be a $300 million budget. That's ridiculous. We need to, they need to get back to making these budgets less. And then if you don't come into time on budget, you get fired. They also need to make a scarcity. They need to do it where it's like, okay, if our movie releases in theaters, it's going to be, you know, that you're not going to be able to buy that on digital for 90 days and you won't be able to buy it on, um, uh, physical media for 120 and it's not going to be in the streaming platform for a year. You knew that you were going to change the market. You're going to create some scarcity and I think you're going to start making money again. So I kind of see where Iger is coming from a little bit in this case. Nick Cage hanging up his jersey? No more acting? Yes and no, says Corey Cook. This is what's it's weird is that uh, Nick Cage basically said he was given an interview recently with Vanity Fair. Um, and the man who basically has been in every movie for the last 10 years, it seems like, or the last 20, said that um, he may plan to retire from movies. He says, I may have three or four movies left in me. I do feel I've said what I've come to say with cinema. I think I took film, I think I took film performance as far as I could. I says, maybe it's time to look at the immersive streaming experience. I don't know. I have to look for the next step, and I haven't found it yet. You know, it's like I never know when to believe this shit when actors say this, if they're retiring or they're not retiring. Same. If it's just something that they're saying, like, I, I, I don't know. But Nick Cage is the kind of quirky person that I wouldn't be surprised if he did that, though. He's also got enough of a catalog where if he did retire tomorrow, there's still a hell of a lot of shit from him that I haven't seen yet. So yeah. I would have plenty of time, plenty of opportunities to kind of experience more Nick Cage. The rumors be damned, Marvel fans. Don't hold your breath expecting Robert Downey Jr. to put the Iron Man suit back on. Uh, yeah, so there has been talks, you know, it's like, is he is he going to come back and this and that and the other thing. And uh, Kevin Feige, a uh, new profile for Robert, uh, for Robert, Jr., Robert Downey Jr. Vanity Fair, uh, Kevin Feige definitively said that that's not going to happen. He said, we are going to keep that moment and not touch that moment again. We all worked very hard. For many years to get to that, and we would never want to magically undo that in any way. Um, we've already said uh, tearful goodbyes in the last day shooting. Everybody has moved on emotionally. We promised him it would be the last time we would make him do it ever. So here's the thing. I 1,000% believe that RDJ, Robert Downey Jr., is done with Marvel, and he is done with Tony Stark. Yeah. I don't believe for one fucking second that there we're done with Iron Man that we're done with Cap, that we're done with Thor. And I'm talking about the OGs. I think it's going to be different people. Because, listen, you can't say you're sit here and say you're going to do Secret Wars and then say this. Because if, you want, if you've actually read anything about Secret Wars, they're all part of it. So I think, you know, I, I think there's probably going to be some type of multiverse situation that happens where you're going to get the OG characters back, but they're just going to be different people, different actors, I should say. And like we mentioned, they went out on such a finale and concluding note that it's just tough to bring. I mean, if it was any other movie, right, that you can think of, whether in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, there's opportunity for that comeback, right, for that kind of resurrection. I think it's just it's just too tough after the way they went out in freaking Endgame. 
I mean, there was there was so much drama with that film and the one before. So great. Fans are anxious to get some details on the scripts for James Gunn's Superman and Batman projects, but Gunn has given very little away lately. Yes, um, he recently took the threads, so I guess I don't know if he's not on Twitter anymore or not. But according to Deadline, he was talking about the most recent draft of Superman Legacy. And he said the most recent draft is 99.9% done. I'm always changing small things, but it's been essentially done since well before the strike. Um, he was also commenting on some rumors claiming that Jensen Echols was going to play Bruce Wayne and Batman. Uh, and Javon Walton was allegedly set to play Damian Wayne. Robin was going to play Wolfgang Net No Good Rats as Dick Grayson, Nightwing, and Clancy Brown as, and Clancy Brown as Albert Pennyworth, which that had me go, whoa. Um, but he basically shot down all those rumors saying there's no script yet. Um, officially, it's false. Uh, I really like the idea of Clancy Brown playing Alfred, though. That was kind of cool. Yeah, I was just kind of looking. You mentioned Twitter. He hasn't posted much. He posted the whole July 11th, 2025 Superman in theaters thing on November yeah, 11th. He's kind of done with a platform that seems to be systematically being destroyed by the CD, the owner. So. <laughs> right, absolutely. One of the reasons we love Simon Pegg is his humor. That humor was quite apparent when discussing what it will take for Tom Cruise to have a big third act in his career. I love how he phrased this. So, you know, this is a humor statement, but I think it's actually a truthful one. He was telling the independent, he says, I love working with Tom and he's really good fun to work with. But I get the feeling that when Tom goes off and does other things, it'll be a completely different thing. He has a whole other age to come in his career. He's a very good actor, a very, very good actor, as you've seen in Magnolia and Jerry Maguire. I think when he finally stops jumping off shit, he'll have a third act. Uh, obviously, perfectly put. Perfectly put. But I think that's a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. I think he. I think we've got. You know, obviously, all things being equal, and, and how it continues, I think we've got an excellent third act coming soon from Tom Cruise, where I think he goes back to his acting roots. And starts to pick more interesting pro projects. I really do believe that. Like, you know, like we saw with RDJ, you know, he's done with Marvel. And I think he started, you know, I think the best thing he ever could have done was chosen to be an Oppenheimer. Because I think this is a reset for him. And I think he's going to start to be in more dramatic projects, interesting projects that's not as big budget. And I think the same thing is eventually going to happen with Tom Cruise. Yeah, there's an alternative universe where Cruise is in much less action films and a heck of a lot more interesting, dramatic roles. We all know he's got the chops. I think you and I have spoken about this kind of relentlessly over the last like four years or so uh, mm -hmm. regarding what he brings to the table. But if it's even if you don't like Tom Cruise, you've probably heard some of those stories about his almost like this Kobe-esque, MJ-esque energy and focus when it comes to his acting and how much pride he takes in it. Yeah. I, this is one of those guys that, like, he ain't slowing down. And I know yeah, that probably no. sounds obvious at this point, but I think That's even thing, 10 like, years from now. He makes commercial fair. He's decided over the last, you know, 20 years that that's pretty much all he's going to lean into. But he never phones it in. I've never seen a movie, even when he did the Jack Reacher movies, which he was completely miscast in, if you read any of the books. He right. committed 100%. So. You thought the latest Dune movie was too slow at times. Director Denny Villeneuve's statement about the sequel, I think, will be welcome news to folks. So it's, he says that he was just talking to Total Film. It says the first movie was more meditative and contemplative. 
We were following a young man discovering a new planet, a new culture. The second movie, it's more of an action film than the first part. It's more muscular. So, and here's the thing. I don't want to have people to read into this that, oh, it's just going to be balls to the wall action. It's going to be a completely different film. Right. I think it's still going to be that contemplative, meditative film. It's just that the second half of the book has much more action. You know, there, there, there's different aspects to it. A lot of but setup in that think, first part. Yeah. I still think that the themes that we talked that we're seeing in the first film are still going to be there. So it'll be interesting. I, I came until March 1st. <laughs> Just months away. Yes, indeed. Talk about being a turd in the punch bowl. Hugh Grant says he hated filming Wonka, which sits theaters this month. Yeah, he was speaking to Metro.co.uk about his experience and said that the movie was, quote, a drivel. Uh, he said, relate how it felt to have multiple cameras pointed at his face from the motion capture tools applied to him. It was like a crown of thorns, very uncomfortable. I made a big fuss about it. I couldn't have hated the whole thing more. He said it's, uh, it was confused because he wasn't sure he was supposed to act with my body or not, and I never received a satisfactory answer. And frankly, what he did with my body was terrible, and it's all been replaced with an animator. And asked if he, if he was thought it was worth it when he finally saw the product, he responded, not really. I'm sorry, but how many, how many years are we going to go by with Hugh Grant complaining about every fucking movie he's ever been in? Well, we're just kind of his thing. He's a, a miserable asshole. You know, it's like if you don't, if, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be like the Hollywood elites, but it's, it's you know, have some humbleness, have some gratefulness. You know, it's Realize like, you're making some big bucks. And you're, you're I don't get it. Doing it's like, at a dream you, job. Why are, the, why are you in this business then if you're going to bitch about every single time? I feel so, like I've, I've, I'm more mad about his bitching over the years than the whole like, Call girl thing. Remember that nope. whole bit? Holy smokes. I remember that. Yeah. I forgot about it. Exactly 40 years ago this month, give or take a few days, an infamous movie appeared on TVs around the world, around the country, actually. The day after, for those unaware, it was about the aftermath of a nuclear strike on the U.S., rattled a lot of people's psyche about war. We're now learning it may have actually prevented an actual nuclear war. Wild stuff. Yeah, this was a big thing when it came out. It was I was five years old, and I, I'm pretty sure that my parents did watch it because this was, thing was watched by 100 million people. And in 1983, I mean, for nights for 2023, that 2023, that's that would be incredible. But for 1983, that's almost on virtually unheard of. But PBS is going to be airing a documentary on this film called Television Event, um, and they put forward the notion that the movie had, may have helped prevent it nuclear war because director Nicholas Meyer, who also directed Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, um, was quoted in an anecdote in uh, Hollywood Reporter. He said, the movie may have indeed helped prevent a nuclear war. It certainly changed one person's mind on the subject, and that person just happened to be the president of the United States. Ronald Reagan wrote about watching the movie in his memoir. His biographer, who spent three years in the White House, said the only time he ever saw Reagan flip out was after seeing the movie. Ultimately, it sent Reagan into such a tailspin, he signed the Intermediate Missile Range Treaty, the only treaty that ever resulted in the physical dismantling of nuclear weapons. I've always thought, man, if you could, movies probably influence more than we think, just yeah. because it gives you it gives you a visual, right, that you yeah. normally wouldn't have. Never so. underestimate the influence of art or, or films on what thing, on what people can see and what they can do. Yeah, I was always kind of fascinated about this one. Wasn't there another one, too, with Lucas Haas, or was that this one, too? Nah, it, I can't remember that, no. 
Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that like you always kind of hear about. I'm, I'm sure like in one of our broadcasting classes, it might've gotten brought up too, but this is going to be kind of neat to revisit. And it's one of those things that if not for this documentary, I think as you get older and uh, you know, younger generations probably haven't heard of this. No. So that'll be kind of a nice eye opener for those rascals. There's no way most of the zoomers have heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> right. See like television. You want the moon, Mary? You want me to lasso the moon fire, Mary? Jimmy Stewart may be six feet under, but that iconic voice is being resurrected for a freaking app of all things. Uh, this, uh, so here's the thing. I'm gonna, of I'm course gonna, this is. I'm going to say the facts, and then I'm going to state my opinion. So <laughs> apparently the estate uh, for Jimmy Stewart, who incidentally did pass away in 1997 at the age of 89, um, Basically, hey, they have given the approval to use his voice through AI to read a story called It's a Wonderful Sleep Story, just in time for the holidays. Um, and it introduces the story with, here's my James Stewart impression. Well, hello, I'm James Stewart. Well, you can call me Jimmy. Tonight, I'm going to tell you a story. It's a heartwarming story of love, of loss, of hope, and of joy. But most of all, it's a wonderful sleep story. Um, so his daughter, one of the daughters, says, we're excited for our dad to be the voice of Calm's latest sleep story. It's amazing what technology can do. and wonderful to see dad's legacy live on this holiday season in new ways, like helping people find restful sleep and sweet treats. Listen, I love the comment. I've used it before for meditation. I've used it for fall asleep. I think it's a fantastic app. This, to me, is absolutely fucking grotesque. Like, I just cannot get behind this at all. What I could get behind is if they just audioized, if that's not a word it is today, all Jimmy Stewart's lines from movies and just like throw it on it. I would actually, I think, listen to that just because it would be interesting. But this mm. is a little on the weird side. I think it's going to get a lot of maybe initial hits or if anything, like just publicity for the app because it's so ridiculous where, especially us movie buffs, we're going to want to kind of explore it. Mm-hmm. That should have been one of your five questions is which actor yeah. would you listen to? I just can't get behind it. I just think it's too freaky. It is too, me. especially when they're dead. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, are your headlines for tonight, this week. Are you ready to talk some Batman Returns? Let's do it. Michael Keaton back in the cockpit. Is it me or did we not see enough Keaton in this one compared to the first? You know, it's funny that he, I never really thought of that until you just brought it up a second ago. But it almost seems like he gets lost in the sauce among the villains because, you know, Danny DeVito and Danny DeVito's unhinged performance really kind of overwhelms overwhelms him. And same thing with with, um, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. I think I maybe appreciated this watching of Batman Returns than I ever have before, because I remember initially watching it when I was a kid and like, this is way out there like this is too weird but when i'm wa- watching it now at 45 i'm just sitting here going especially mr michelle pfeiffer and danny devito are giving absolutely fearless performances they, <laughs> that's a good way just, to put they, it they're full-blown i don't give a fuck mode and just going for whatever it is that tim burton's trying to go here so it's such a nice just 1992 time capsule i thought that multiple times on the rewatch i'm like you got DeVito. And, I mean, I don't even know when DeVito's peak is. He's had, like, some valleys and peaks, and who knows where his, like, you know, top-tier range is. But this is, like, a couple years after Twins. Obviously, mm-hmm. he does, like, a whole... Throw him off from a train. 
Yeah, like Romancing the Stone and Jewel yeah. of the Nile, which, well, he was in both of those, right? Yeah. Yeah. Makes that comeback with It's Always Sunny, which was kind of a nice little resurrection. And then, of course, Michelle Pfeiffer, this is clearly like her 90s Jordan era, too, where she just kind of goes on a major run. And Michael Keaton, the second Batman film for him. But it's just a nice uh, kind of revisit. What's going through your mind when the credits hit on this one, right? You got the bat signal, you see freaking... Catwoman's still alive. She's looking up. How are you processing the rewatch? So I'm I'm finishing the movie and I'm thinking a couple different things. Is is one that I, again I come back to this in the beginning of this podcast. I'll say it again. I think this is a great non traditional Christmas movie. I really do. Yeah. Um, the second thing is every time I see this ending, you know where where Bruce, you know, they stop the car. He go. He thought thinks he sees Selena Kyle, and he goes and gets the cat. You know, and he comes back and they just kind of drive off. And you see the the bat signal up in the air, and the last thing you see is Catwoman's looking up at the bat signal. And I thought it was such at the time I was like, oh, you know, it's kind of like a cliffhanger a little bit, but sure. not, but not, not a not a to be continued at the end of the Back to the Future, but it's like a tease for more. And when I see that ending now, I think to myself, fuck, we never got that third Tim Burton bat movie, and yeah. I really think we should. Um, and I really think that what happened was, you know, the studio basically told him, okay, you know, cause it, he, he's always said that the first Batman is 50% him, 50% the studio, which, which I think is fair. And one of the reasons that he took over, decided to do Batman the returns because he wasn't, he really didn't want to, cause he felt like he, he's not really into sequels, Tim Burton. He says he, he doesn't, most of the time they're not justified. They're not doing anything interesting. And he said, the only way that I'm going to do this is if I have total creative control. Um, and they said, they're like, yeah, hey, man, Bat the first Batman made a ton of money, money. You go do you, you know, get get as crazy and as weird as you want. And that this is a say what you want about Batman Returns. This is a full on Tim Burton movie with his signature style from start to finish. And then despite the fact that, you know, the movie did make pretty good numbers you know it was a 50 to 80 million dollar budget and made you know 267 million dollars almost did make as much money as the original batman and i think that scared people off and they're like mm, maybe we didn't want to do a tim burton one maybe this was just too overtly strange and, and, and sexual and you know maybe we did you know it wasn't we couldn't market the toys as well or whatever you want to say um because I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, there was some fair share of, of, of parents back in the day who took their 12-year-olds to go see Batman Returns and weren't too happy about it <laughs> when they got done with the product, considering some of the more, more overtly sexual things that are said in this movie. Absolutely. I'm surprised we get the P word, right? Yeah. At least I mean, one of those. I mean, to, it's a double on chapter, obviously. Yeah. Right. And then Michelle, I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer was just... I don't think I appreciated how hot she was back in the day, but I definitely do on the rewatch. I think somebody asked her too over the years, like, Hey, do you ever, I think the the word they used was, do you ever wear the old outfit to amuse your husband? Who I believe is still David yep. E. Kelly, right? Still married. I think they've been married for 32 years or something. Who like created yeah. Boston legal and the practice yep. and all those Allie legal McBeal. shows. Allie McBeal, who was based on Michelle Pfeiffer. Supposedly. Yes. Um, 
And I guess like she had a really tough time trying to act and even breathe in that thing to the point where like, I think Burton had to kind of like remind her about adjusting your voice because it's not coming across like we need it to come across. Um, it was just a lot of like physical limitations for her, but somehow she, she pulls it off. And I think that's one of the charms of this too, is when you come into this, like I loved and adored that first one. Cause that one comes out, what was that? 89, right? 89. Yeah. So I'm nine when that comes out. And I mean, I was just in love with the whole, that was like the big Batman return in yeah. general for like just the, the superhero himself. Cause we hadn't really heard of him or seen him since fricking the Adam West horse shit, which was by the way, a delight back in the day, but super campy and goofy. So then this one comes back and you're like, Oh, okay. This is like, this is kind of capturing a little bit of a darker, essence of like gotham right like that cityscape and then you got nicholson doing his thing and it's like how can you top this how can you top the great jack nicholson playing an iconic villain oh i know we'll hit you with two villains one and Mm -hmm. a half i guess um with devito and michelle pfeiffer what did you think about pfeiffer's performance just overall i thought it's it's one of those things that i never really gravitated towards it as a kid but I think as I've gotten older, I've appreciated what it was because it's a difficult role because, for one, it's physical. But you're really, you know, the thing about Batman, the realm of Batman in general, is it's all about dualities, right? You've got Bruce Wayne, Batman, different sides of his personality. Same thing where I always thought that, um, you know, Two-Face uh, was kind of the, the dark aspect of, of Batman in some ways. But you've got the same situation going on here with selena kyle because there's selena kyle and then there's the other half the other side of it in that in that you know we have Catwoman, um and they're very two distinct characters uh in in fact you might even say that she's playing three because she had that kind of ditzy uh, administrative assistant but not ditzy she's actually just kind of socially awkward right and then she gets killed when max pushes her out the window and she, there's, there's like these two other personalities that form. You've got this like sexy, empowered, strong, no bullshit, but almost chaotic Catwoman, where she has even like a deeper, throatier voice that is just, I'm sorry, sexy as hell. But then you've got this other Selena Kyle, who's there's a little bit of the Catwoman that's like seeping into her, that she's a little bit more confident, she's a little bit more direct. But she's also like hysterical. There's obviously that there, there's some there's some mental health situations going going on there. But her performance, I think, is much more nuanced than I originally gave it credit for. Same, agree. That's actually, actually really one hell of a performance. And then you, like you said, you factor in the cat suit, which does not look comfortable. And then you factor in having to use that whip. It's incidentally hitting those three mannequins off the head. Awesome. She did that. She did that in one take. There's just some kind of you know exude sexuality, and again the fearlessness. I mean, your directors are sitting there saying, "Hey, I want you to sit on this bed and suddenly decide you're just going to give yourself a bath like if you were a cat." <laughs> I mean, there's so many what the fuck moments in this movie that but even now I'm just like, "What the hell?" <laughs> but what I love is how much Tim Burton is able to capture everything. Like he's able to mm. capture the seriousness of these roles because the villains are very empathetic like as much as you want good to happen to gotham as much as you're rooting against the penguin and some of catwoman's decisions 
-hmm. you also kind of get where they're coming from. And I feel like Burton does an awesome job of capturing that with also, also a little bit of the camp, a little bit of the, Hey, it's, it's, it's still a comic book adaptation at the end of the day. I think that's a tricky tightrope to walk. I think he walks it, uh, Walendo well, I would say, (laughs) um, the mood overall is what really hit me on the rewatch. I think the use of Danny Elfman's main theme and some, some of the other kind of offshoots of that theme. It's, 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 it's nice to hear like a great big rousing score again, because I feel like lately on the pod, we've done a lot of movies. We've covered a lot of films where music is kind of used sporadically and erratically and all over the place where here you just get the good classic Hollywood romp. And I love it. It is that classic Hollywood romp, the powerfulness. Then that's one of the few things that he kept was Danny Elfman for the score, which a, to me, the Batman and the Batman Returns scores are some of the most iconic movie themes of all time. Yeah. But what I think made it, the other, you, you talked about the grittiness and the gothicness, but still having the camp. What I think really changed a lot between Batman and Batman Returns is that, you know, I think even when we, you and I did Batman before, I don't know how long, but I think that's one of our very first pods we did Batman Superman. Um, is how much the character Gotham City is in that movie in the first Batman, and that really, you know, it it puts the gothic in Gotham, like you know, the giant gargoyles and, and all that stuff. And I, the thing that I noticed in this film, and even doing the research, is I think Tim Burton leads into that even more. You know, he rep- he replaced this, the cinematographer from the original film, which was Roger Pratt. He replaced him with his own guy, which is Stefan Stefanski, and he also replaced the editor. Uh, he replaced uh, Chris Levinson was set for, for Batman Returns, whereas Ray Lovejoy was the one in in the first one. And I think they really like lean into that gothic architecture, even like the giant those two like massive statues at the beginning where they're like pulling those two like levers. It looks like something out of Metropolis combined yeah. with like an Escher painting. And you you there's this broodingness. Everything seems so large yet also so like almost constrictive or claustrophobic um, that anything could put possibly be hiding in the shadows. Claustrophobic is a good word to use here. And in some ways, this movie almost feels dirtier than the first one, especially with all in the sewers. You know, there's just that. And I think that's obviously a theme, right? And you've got the, the, the people up above the elites, the rich people of Gotham who are almost, uh, they stay, they literally stand above the lower people. You know, it, Penguin, somebody who's been disregarded by his, his 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 whole life, thrown away like a piece of trash into the sewer, and then this is his him trying to like fit into this society and then failing miserably. And it's like, well, if I can't be one of you, then I'm going to kill you. There's just such a, a vibe here that really embraces more of that Gotham City spirit. Does it, did I, am I rambling? Am I making any sense here? <laughs> no, yeah, and it's 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 tricky because I, I love how even on some of the research. I saw how they were talking about how this is one of the more like last like old Hollywood studio films where it's like all shot on like a sound stage. You can even tell like the background, like the skyline shots, which I still think are kind of cool, even though you could tell they're not real. But I like how they try to make it look like the city just goes on and on forever, Mm -hmm. almost like this eternal infinity city. Yeah, it feels like you, you can never leave it. It's like a city world in a sense. 
like a um, slightly askew version of reality, right? Yeah, it's like you know you're being tricked, but you don't care because you're just yeah. like enamored by Perfect how thing. yeah, brooding and 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 atmospheric it feels. I also mm-hmm. thought that the first one, the first one, Gotham seemed more full fledged and 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 bigger in a sense. It felt like a a true city. This feels more like a slum and grungier city yeah and a smaller one a little bit other than a few shots but i think in the first one you feel like you got the whole you got the whole city in a sense just with some of the different detectives that they show you know you got a couple of reporters mixed in there um there's more like shots i feel like in the daytime you see michael keaton in light more where right. in this one i feel like he's more he's always like can we get a couple lights in the bat the cave shots. like i get it yeah. but <laughs> alfred can you can you change a bulb once in a while man we got a cd player in there we do know that. <laughs> right that was great it's like hey come on here man um uh, yeah come on can you scratch a cd like that is <laughs> he dj premiere over here yeah this was it, it was a delight to kind of step back into this into this world. And I think Burton does such an awesome job of creating all these worlds. Now, I, I don't think we mentioned at the top of the pod that this is our last uh, year of the director segment, if you will. Yes, we're doing three straight films with Tim Burton. Uh, we're going to be doing this one and then Pee Wee's Big Adventure and then Beetlejuice. Uh, we were going to be doing Big Fish at the end, but we've changed our minds. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in, in, in the pod. Um, but yeah, it, it's here's the thing. What I, what I respect about the great director and I do think Tim Burton is a pretty great director. He's had some, he's had some misses, you know, he's had some situations where I think movies where he was almost parodying himself, hmm. but you can't, the, you, there's never been a scenario where I've, where I've walked away and, and you just know what a, a Tim Burton movie You just do. There's just something. Even like by listening and hearing with the, the themes that he chooses, you could. The tell. themes and just the way he shoots things. And the way he perceives reality, where everything's just a little bit askew, a little, things are a little bit absurd, things are a little bit strange, right? So, and you it's really a hard see, thing like, to get on film. I, it's hard. It's even hard for me to like verbalize what I. Yeah. Think because he has such a unique sensibility. But and we such all a know. Unique it. Eye. And I yeah. think it it probably hit home the most during Edward Scissorhands. Like mm-hmm. with, with and we'll get into it obviously next week with. Um, peewee's big adventure but that always seemed like a peewee film first until you mm-hmm. go back i remember being surprised when I, I feel like i was like 20 when i when i realized that was a tim burton film his first film and i was like well of course it was how right. did i not realize that then it was because paul runes was such a major character in that but in here and edward scissorhands you really get like that that holy shit this is what tim burton's kind of all about with his quirkiness and there's that dark whimsical flair to a lot of uh a lot of stuff we got to get to devito here we're gonna i know we're jumping all around here did danny devito get the job done as penguin i kind of thought he did and i like how it goes away from like the classic just the cigarette chomping gangster it's like he's an actual penguin almost yeah that's the thing about this is that this is such a intentional diversion away from the Burgess Meredith penguin that we see from the 1960s. And to the point where, let me, you just mentioned the whole cigarette thing. He, they give that some point in this movie, that guy gives him the, you know, the cigarette holder and he spits it out. Right. And a perfect encapsulating moment of this performance because it rejects that kind of hammy, ham hock uh, performance from the 1960s. 
make no mistake, Penguin is an, is an absolute villain. I mean, he, he ran a gang where he, they were stealing and robbing and burning all these things up. And they're shooting um, people like at and, press conferences. Yeah. And then and then nothing is too too extreme for him. Ask me, did he get the job done? Yes. It's not a necessarily subtle performance, but it doesn't have to be. I think, you know. I if, love it. If, if there is a collab, oh, I, I do too. If there's a collaboration between Tim Burton and, and Danny DeVito on this, they're probably just saying, go for it. Whatever it is. There's, there's there's no rules here. Go as zany as you can be, you know, <laughs> you know, just saying random stuff like, um, you know, just eat a fish in front of people, you know, just like have these parasols and just, you know, fly into the air that makes no no sense, you know, wear top, top get into like those mini cars that you drive in the Batmobile. It's like there's there's nothing that's off limits even like saying like weirdly sexual stuff this like imagine you oswald cobblepot filled in the void i'd like to fill her void like, it's, yeah, like it's like unbelievable Scott moment there in, back in 1992 <laughs> but again it's just much like Catwoman. this is fearless he is just going for it at every level and it's not easy to do with all the prosthetics that he has and it's an interesting choice for him to really lean into being almost emulating like a penguin waddles you know he's obviously got those the the hands like they are and he's uses he's using actual penguins to like launch missiles at gotham the stuff that some of the stuff we're saying right now sounds, sounds so ridiculous ridiculous and should not work but somehow it works and you get so caught up in the story i love the choices and i love the way you are you articulated all that so many cool choices that burton makes that no other directors would make. I feel like I've been repeating myself when I say that. Um, but I do like to point out like the, the singularity of certain creators and directors on this pod. And with Burton, I just, everything from like choosing the little pre-credit origin story yes. of Penguin, where you get Paul Rubens and you get that actress who played Simone from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I remember as mm-hmm. a kid, because I always loved Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and then seeing this and going, holy shit, it's Paul Rubens and like Boy. the Simone lady. Yeah, it was like yeah. the DiCaprio meme. I almost think I remember looking around the theater being like, does anybody else like realize who that is? And it's uh, such well, like a couple seconds with those guys. It's put great. some respect on her. <laughs> right. Yeah. Put a little, yeah. And then just to show, you know, him in the, the, the little cage where he takes the cat and how they film that. Or even when he dies, how. Yes you know, he's kind of like slid down that slope into the sewer water and the penguins are on all sides. Of yeah. They're like, like pallbearers, like putting yeah. it into the water. And then like that, so that elfman theme kind of guiding him down there as well. Yeah. Um, everything about the choices to, to, to display like what he's gone through him mm-hmm. being like, you know, a forgotten son, um, how they transform, how they kind of pivot from, you know, his grief, into like why he wants revenge on the city and so many people uh everything about like how they lay this character out i'm i'm, I'm really digging yeah I, I like it too in in the fact again we talked about how there's so many weird choices and things that happen but you you don't question it because i mean listen if, you, if you, none of this bears up to scrutiny right like how would how who, who raised the penguin underneath the suit who taught him how to read and write you know, like all this, you don't think about this stuff. It's just how long would it take to to tape all those documents together? Really, right. like really do that? Like that's a it's lot like, of time. That's kind of and yeah, that goes back to some of the more co- comedic moments that are in this. Like, hey, 
I'm Fred's hand. You know, he's holding up Max Rex's <laughs> old great. partner, you know, where he's, or even the fact that it's even in his death moment, like you said, he picks the wrong umbrella. He's like, shit, I picked a cute one. Or, right. or even, or even like, it's, it's so funny to me how, well, here's the thing is like, even the, the whole being the mayor thing is secondary, right? His whole plan was to take the revenge from the very start. He was already doing those names to the firstborn sons of Gotham so he, he could go and kill them. Um, and it's even, even like that part where like the one, the one clown's like, uh, penguin, I don't know, killing kids and all that. He just like shoot him. Right. You know, it's, it's just every, every choice is so diabolical. And I love you. I love the, the point that you made about when there's, they're filming the, um, the scene with the bird and the cat where Catwoman like puts the bird in her mouth, which is oh, so that bizarre. One, yeah. That scene is the scene where they meet for the first time is absolutely insanely strange. But again, great camera work, I think, in, in this case. Um, you know, an excellent choice, really, um, by by Tim Burton, but also Stefan Sapansky, where it's kind of like following them in the round, and you're seeing both of them through the cages, the, the bird cage itself, right. um, kind of like threatening each other. It's so, it's so, it's so perfect. It just, it's, it's just so perfectly strange. <laughs> the way that Burton just, and not to just keep, you know, giving him a French kiss throughout this whole episode here, but put it this way. Here's a good way to kind of highlight how awesome these two Burton films are when it comes to Batman is when you think of the next two, right? It was just two more after this. Yeah. The Clooney one and the Kilmer one. Um, Those ones as goofy as these ones are and as wild as they are, they don't come across as, as dumb as the next two because Mm -hmm. Burton is able to seamlessly like weave everything together and create a world. Whereas the next two seem like, you know, 12 year old me just kind of (laughs) wrote with my left hand and, you know, put it on screen. I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? It just seems like there's a, there's a method to the madness with these two Burton films. Yeah, there's, they're definitely, even though the second one is much more Burton-esque than the first, they basically have this connection. Whereas Batman and Robin, while I appreciate it, I remember seeing that and thinking, this is so not what we we, we were working with before. And then even to, they, to get into the, the camp and ridiculousness and just stupidity of Batman and Robin. When they're uh, surfing but, out of the sky... Yeah, on, like those, like, sir. I mean, that's it's just so bad. Even in the theater, as like a fifteen or sixteen year old, whenever the hell that one came out, I remember going, "Ooh, this is yeah, this ain't good." The thing about the difference between that is that they were going for like obvious jokes and puns and so many dumb things. Whereas, you know, there's definitely points of humor in this movie, but it's it's a little I don't want to say it's subtle, but it, it's a little more earned and it's a little more organic. Like even the part when when Batman. Uh, you know, when uh, early on, when Selena Kyle's being held hostage by that one clown, and he just like shoots behind her, he's like, "You missed!" and then pulls him like that, you know, knocks him out. Or even the fact that earlier, when like he, the one guy's trying to breathe fire on him, is fire, and then he just turns the Batmobile around and sets him on fire that way. It's just these little subtle things, uh, you know, here and there, the way that that people speak or the way that they deliver lines or whatever is is just i there, there there's that humor that kind of works here where it just doesn't work in those other films these are two absolutely distinctly his own if i told you before these batman movies came out that michael keaton would be like the most serious character 
in these films. You'd probably laugh at me, but man, when I'm rewatching this, I'm kind of reminded of why he's my, I don't know if he is my favorite Batman anymore. I go back and forth between him and Bale. It's Bale. But he's just, there's a certain presence that he brings, which is tough to do, I feel like, given his background and given the thing that I always discuss on here, which is baggage, which is I always end up still seeing a Bruce Wayne. I don't see, like, Keaton really going for it. I see a guy who just seems like kind of a poised, rich playboy who takes his shot with the ladies when he gets those opportunities, very dedicated to kind of snuffing out crime. I feel like there's that air of mystery to him, maybe because we don't get a lot of like dialogue from him or background from him. Whereas we do with maybe like say bail and some of the other guys. But um, I think for me, this is one of those performances that will always like hold up more than any of the other performances in these Batman films uh, is definitely Keaton's version here of Bruce Wayne. It, it is because it's, I think the best word to put it on is kind of enig- enigmatic. Um, you never really get to know Bruce Wayne or Batman fully. That, I mean, right. That's why his relationships kind of fail, so to speak. And I think that, that the reason you never get to really know Batman or Bruce Wayne completely is because of the fact that he doesn't know himself as, as completely. And I think that Michael Keaton did a great job of, of – building on that duality and i think he saw selena especially at the end uh, in Catwoman, as a way to get maybe break beyond that you almost get that 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 conversation between him and selena at the end where she's trying to kill max shrek is a lot more heavily textured than than you think because it's her it's him trying to to say to her you know we're the same you know we're, we're we've got you know we're split right down the center we, we we've had that duality in our lives and you know he's like offering that hand to it's like you know come with me we'll take him to the police and then we'll go home we'll figure this stuff out together you know he sees that kindred spirit sees that kindred soul but i also think it's also like him saying to her please come with me so i can walk away so i don't have to be back so i don't have to keep going out in the night over and over again and looking for somebody else to get revenge against. Because there is one great thing in, in Batman Forever that I love, where he says, where Bell Kilmer's Batman says something along the lines, it's like, you know, you just keep going out in the night and to find another face and another, and then you wake up one day and realize that revenge has become your whole life and you won't know why. And I think that that... It's a great line. It's a great line, but I think Michael Keaton emphasizes it more in that one scene. I mean, the fact that he's even able to rip off his 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 mask and show it to the world and say, listen, just come with me. Just walk away from this vengeance. I know what path you're going down and just come away with me and figure this out. And she, you know, ultimately kind of just like him, she she, he, she really couldn't. You know, she says, I'd love to do that, um, but I just couldn't live with myself. You know what I mean? And that's I, I feel. I feel like I've been able to appreciate the intricacies of Batman Returns a little bit more upon this last watch, and that's one of the things that really stood out to me. But to go back to your, you know, your original point, yeah, that, I think that's why Keaton is just so well done in this role. Is he's kind of droll, right? You know, and he's he's very serious, except for a couple things where, especially with he gets lighthearted when he's talking to, to Alfred, right? Michael Goff, by the way, as an ex, it was an excellent Alfred through all You're four. A great films. look to him. It, it's a great look, and just say, can you can you like. You know, tell her, you know, but not in a dumb, be my girlfriend kind of way. I think it turns into a, a 13-year-old for a second. And and then he has that same interaction. Oh, what a great choice by 
Burton right afterwards to have Selena come in and do the same thing. It's like, could you just think of like a dirty limerick or something? One has just sprung to mind. <laughs> you know, great. Good back and forth. Yeah, not a whole lot of dialogue, I feel like with mm-hmm. some of those some of those characters but when they do have a good line they make it sing one of the fun facts that i i found amusing we'll say more than the other ones uh something i saw on imdb it said the crew had a hard time getting the shot where the monkey delivers the letter from <laughs> batman to the penguin evidently danny devito's makeup terrified the animal on the graham norton show which is super funny by the way a lot of a lot of those shows on uh youtube great interviews on there devito said that when the monkey came down the stairs and took one look at him it immediately jumped at his testicles trying to attack him thankfully the heavy (laughs) padding he wore stopped the monkey from doing any damage and ladies and gentlemen that is the fun fact of the episode (laughs) that's interesting um yeah and that's that whole sequence is is crazy to me because Again, another ridiculously off-kilter choice for Tim Burton. They're, 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 his henchmen are going down the middle of Gotham in a train that's going like two miles an hour right. and, and throwing the firstborn sons of Gotham into, into the cages. And rather than showing in this story uh, that Batman, you know, beating everybody up and get, get, getting everybody back in their, into their homes, you really just see, like, I think his shadow in the one taking that one guy up front right. and then it cuts to the next scene where it's just handing him the you know you know the monkey hands him the note and says the children regret they can't they can't make it batman it's such a excellent tactic of of storytelling of making it lean and accessible and not having you know kind of it, 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 trimming away the fat you don't have to have these extra bloated scenes you can you're able to make the connection. And I think that's a brilliant choice by Tim Burton as director, but I think it's also an excellent uh, job by, you know, the screenplay in this case, Danny Walters, who I think this is a, this is not an easy screenplay to write. Um, and somehow he's able to pull off that Tim Burton vibe. that works. A lot of old school Hollywood filmmaking here. We kind of mentioned it, uh, you know, the indoor sound stages, the miniatures, the skyline paintings in the background, kind of adding some depth there. I thought it was refreshing to kind of see zero almost CGI in here and just like yeah. old school effects. How did you process the lack of that stuff compared to like <laughs> the superhero films of today? You know, it's, 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 it's just kind of the nature of the beast right now that yeah. they become CGI fests, and it's really unfortunate. And I like the fact that there seems to be a leaning more towards back towards practical, which I, I appreciate and, and and enjoy. But it's 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 almost since we've been in in the river in the deluge of that for the last ten years, it's almost refreshing to go back and watch this kind of old old Hollywood studio yes. situation. Like you said where it's yes. on sound stages, it's clear everything was built. Um, there's not a lot of uh, the CGI. There's a few things here and there, but not even like the Central Park. It's clearly like it doesn't feel like a park. You know, when mm-hmm. you see like Penguin running over the bridge, or there's certain shots in the city where you know it doesn't feel like this massive city at times like it feels more like you said claustrophobic and -hmm. i think part of that is because there is the lack of cgi and it is like a stage essentially yeah and that's the thing is that 
you you keep mentioning the fact that it was on set, the whole thing was pretty much shot on sound, shot on sound stages, but it doesn't feel that way. You know, there's you know that's the one thing I think about some of and not all of them, but certain films from like the fifties or sixties is that they you can tell it's a sound stage, right? There there doesn't have that authenticity, and it's not till like kind of the late sixties. And into the 70s aesthetic where people like, oh, let's do realism. Let's actually go on like location more so. And film says, let's not do everything behind a soundstage. Um, and I don't, you don't obviously don't need that with this particular film, but somehow it works. It's almost like the last great uh, exhalation of that Hollywood studio type of, of image in that case. Um, I wanted to ask you what, you know, we, we touched on it a little bit. But what's your, your impression of, um, of Max Shrek, of, of Walkins. He makes for, I, I'd say, a very interesting villain because he's kind of that corporate, you know, greed-type dude, but he wears that veneer of being the, the great guy in, in you know, out among the public, but he's really not, you know? It's almost like an anti-Bruce Wayne in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe not. Um yeah, I was kind of, I had mixed feel. I love the performance, especially on the rewatch. I actually kind of forgot he was in this. And then once it got going, I'm like, oh, that's right. We get walking in this too. What a nice little treat. I feel like at the time, it was probably an odd choice to see him in this. Because that's a very left field performance, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Now, with today's goggles, you go, oh, of course, that's like a Christopher Walken role. But that's right. because he's kind of become like, this almost goofy uncle yeah. type of a, a, a role in society and pop culture. But at the time that, that wasn't the case. So I'm kind of, I find myself watching it with like, watch it with, with, with old school goggles and new school goggles where I'm like, Ooh, I like kind of what he's doing here. Um, at the end of the day, you want a villain that you can hate. Right. And he gives me that, but he mm-hmm. also gives me that, I can see somebody act like I could see the actor performing, mm-hmm. which I know sometimes like I tend to rip on on the pod where it's like, oh, it's just it's him playing. Him. It's Ben Affleck playing himself. Yeah. Um, but I like when I can kind of see somebody stretching and really going for it. And I, I feel like I get that here. Look, like you always say about a lot of actors, there's cert- there's a certain range. It's how well you do within those kind of. Mm-hmm. kind of range like even when you got a great singer they might not be able to get really high up in those octaves but it's what do you do with those like other little levels like how do you play around with it what choices do you make what kind of spacing do you use when you're creating your art and um look he always brings a little something that nobody else brings and i get that shithead you know we all know these type of guys. We all know these type of guys in society. And I think he, he pulls that off. I like the goofiness to the role, even when he's like pretending like he's going to push Selena Kyle out the window. And yeah. I was like, just ah, thinking that ah. uh-huh. almost like, ah, I'm just kidding. And then he like turns halfway and then really shoves her out the window. Yeah. Not a lot of actors. I feel like can pull that off and it feels like really believable. That feels like a very walking esque thing. It is. And it, I think, I think you hit it right on the head is the fact that not a lot of actors can pull that off. If other actors do that, it might be all that's hokey or corny. That just doesn't work. But the term I would use to describe his performance, this is gleefully malicious. He's evil, but he's doing it with like a wink in his eye type situation. It's like, it's like, he's like hero, afraid not. 
I'm just some poor schmo who got lucky. And then, and then, you know, it's just like for him, like schmo. doing stuff, like coming up to this, like, let me guess prep school, goody, goody or whatever. And, and, or just even like, say, like, like, so rather than yawning, saying yawn, you know, just, right. just the way he, and that perfectly quaffed like white hair that's that, that's going on. You know, they did some with his eyebrows too, right? They're like gray. Yeah. I'll put it this way. I don't think I can picture anybody else, any other actor playing Shrek. Is he in the comic? I don't think so. The comics, I should say. Like, there's one. I I don't think so. I think that was a character. I could be wrong. We'll get our fact checkers out there and see what we do for that. Um, But I don't think that he was in the comic. It's weird in terms of the dynamics of the villains, because he's clearly a villain. You know who's who's funny enough I actually felt more sympathy for was kind of Chip, his son. Who doesn't yeah, seem, he doesn't seem like a real, really a bad guy. He's just, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Isn't that the same actor who plays like the? He was in the program. Yeah, like the drugged up one, right? Like yeah. the one who's always like pumping the steroids and stuff. Yeah, the steroid. Yeah. I just yep. remember thinking, wow, he put on. I don't know which came. Either I saw, whatever one came first. I saw him in chronological order. So whatever one came second, I either thought, wow, that dude lost a lot of weight, or holy shit, did he? Okay, then I thought he really bulked up for this. So, and then he kind of the guy like disappeared. I don't have his IMDb page uh, in front of me, but yeah, kind of a uh, kind of an interesting little character oh. role here. There's not a lot of side characters no in this film, less so than any other Batman film. Very much. I mean, you pointed out at the beginning, it's less so than the original Batman, where there was those. You know, we got Eckhart, we've got you know Knox. Here is kind of keeping it close to some really core key players over and over again. That's Batman, it's Catwoman, it's Penguin, it's Max Shrek, and it's it's a little bit of the mayor. But those are kind of the, your your key players that get get roped in again and again and again and again and again. Um, and I think that's a genius move because the problem nowadays I think is you're almost diluting too much. Where you've got these movies that are too many team ups and shit like that where they're not just focusing on the main source of the characters. And that's the strength here, I think. I've also kind of, I don't want to say impressed, but it's interesting even now to think about the time that how how kind of gruesome and violent this movie is. Like, the thing that always stands out to me the most is that part where he's like, you know, could be worse, my nose could be gushing blood, and then he bites the dude on the nose, and then there's just blood everywhere. Yeah, um, I think that was kind of unexpected because I think people are still somewhat in 92 thinking of the old campy bat, bat, Batman. This is just not that. People are getting set on fire. People are getting blown up by bombs. You know, people are getting their noses bit like that. People are drowning, are drowning in raw sewage. It's, it's off the wall. Yeah, I think people forget like how big of a deal that first one was. I mean, that's one of the that's in like those kind of years where that's when I really started to like get almost. I know I feel weird saying that. It's like Luke, you were nine, but when you're really into something, like the same way we were really into sports in that era, you know, at, at some point in your life, it, you you reach that kind of I don't want to say expertise, but like an intelligence about like how a certain thing that you enjoy how it really all operates like it's kind of see the whole chessboard and it was right around the time where you start to think oh okay this is like a big deal like this is the first time that batman is getting like a reimagining right mm-hmm. and this is like the reimagining of the reimagining because now you got like a sequel so now it's it's it's, it's burton back in his play playhouse doing a little something different based on like okay how is he going to top the first one which is uh which is a, a heavy lift 
I started to think once I hit the credits, it's like how much I, I'm able to appreciate like all the different versions of Batman mm. that we've had. I mean, even if you can kind of, I'll even put like the Keaton, Kilmer, Clooney stuff in the same, I guess, little like lane, if you will. But yeah, just the early campy stuff, which is a blast to watch. The jokes in there are ridiculous, but it is a hoot. And then you've got these ones where like it actually feels like Gotham City. And then, of course, when Nolan comes around and taps Bale, then it's like, okay, what if like Batman really existed in like the real world? That's always kind of how I've been processing Mm-hmm. those batman films and then of course you got like the Zack snyder type um you know then it's like hard to see for me hard to see like oh is that bruce wayne or is it ben affleck then that gets a little weird for me and then of course with the batman that would that felt like a totally reimagining too right where it almost feels like how did you describe it i feel like you had a good description of how that version of batman it was almost like it was like a true detective meets um like drug-infested underwear. I don't know how you said it, but oh, for like the Batman from the Robert Pattinson. Pattinson. Yeah, yeah it's just it had that. I, I can't really. It's almost like a. I can't even describe it. It, but, it they, but they the all have a feel. Yes, they right? all there's have like feel. there's a luster. There's like a film on it. Yeah, there's the Baskin Robbins of Batman, and I think there's. <laughs> I think the thing is that there's space for all of that. Because yeah. Believe it or not, there are people out there who really appreciate the campy Batman from the 60s. That they can appreciate the really campy, like, you know, Batman Forever and Batman um, and Robin. I don't. I think they're, I just, I don't like them at, at all. But Batman can be so many different things. And the fact that this character keeps coming back and keep re- keeps reinventing himself, like, that's what makes me excited to see the James Gunn version of Batman. Because I think we're going to get something that different that maybe that we've never even had before. Something that's that's a combination of kind of the grittiness of what we're seeing from Matt Reeves, but also the the idea that's firmly entrenched that this is absolutely a comic book where so many of these different t- type of people, um, you know, exist. Uh, but I, I agree with what you're saying with that. Let me ask, what is your thinking on the, on the process? The fact that they actually used real um, penguins in this emperor blackfoot and i believe king penguins as well um and then was kind of there was supplemented with puppets i guess there was a little cgi as well um i don't know i remember a big at the time like PETA was protesting the fact that they used penguins it just oh, no so, shit. so bizarre to me and because if you think about it you just go well that's a poor delivery system for missiles <laughs> but but that's again but it's so burning it works yeah yeah, it's very burnt. It's very, like I said earlier, it's refreshing. I mean, that's another delight on the rewatch is, oh, yeah, totally forgot that we were going to get some real penguins in here. And I think that's where some of the only CGI was used is where they do that shit that, you know, kind of perfected in some of the other, maybe the Lord of the I don't know if it's technically the same trick, but, you know, where you got like five of something and you make it look like there's 25 of something. I feel like they did that here a couple times with those with those penguins like there are like a bunch of robot ones but yeah i just thought it was like super neat it's a nice mm-hmm. it's a nice touch to kind of add um it sets it apart and kind of going what i was hinting at a little bit earlier where burton kind of puts his own spin and touch on it especially when you look at the whole batman catalog as a whole like i feel like i'm able to appreciate these films a little bit more now that i've seen a more serious batman 
with Robert Pattinson or with Christian Bale. Now I'm able to appreciate these things for more as what they are. Whereas I feel like a few years after these, they started to kind of, I don't know. There was a period there where I feel like they didn't age well, especially when like maybe the first Nolan one came out. And then like when you kind of went back and revisited, it was like, no, no, no. It's like a very singular creation. It was a very specific type of thing that like existed there. Um, in the zeitgeist and in like the comic book world. So, yeah. And I think the penguins are one of those elements that just sets it apart. I mean, if you had those things in the bail versions or even the latest one, I mean, you'd be like, what is going on here, man? This Mm is, this ends now, but it's, it's kind of, it's the world that we, you know, when you go into a film, the director, the creatives, they set the parameters of right. And I think Tim Burton did a great job of establishing those parameters, even in the first one. And he definitely slammed them home early on in the second. And that, I think the fact that this movie works is because it works within the parameters that have been, but that have been grounded, that have been set up um, by the director in the first place. Uh, I think that's why they, they kind of fundamentally work. Um, but it, it's, it's weird some of the quirky choices that are even made, too, is that there's even a point where and I wanted to get your take on this too. There's even a point where Batman or the, the Batman story as a whole kind of gets introspective and actually brings up a good, good question because when the when the Batmobile, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, but when the Batmobile basically gets destroyed um, or at least stripped down completely, and they get back to the Batcave, and you know Alfred brings up the real point and is like, hey. You know, we've, you know, obviously we got to take care of Penguin, but we got to take care of the Batmobile as well. It's not like we can take it to some, uh, you know, to some regular Joe Schmo auto mechanic. And that got me thinking, I was like, you know, that's right. You know, what do we do about self-repair for, for you know, things like that? You know, and it's just kind of a, a weird, quirky question to have. Um, and I yeah. like the fact that they kind of inserted that into a Batman movie and then they, then they don't let it go. Because they followed up, you know, with like 10 or 20, 12 minutes later, where you actually see Bruce tinkering on the Batmobile trying to fix it himself. Hey, we get layers, man. That's what we like about this. That's what adds the authenticity, right? Don't just give us the veneer. Give us like what's underneath. Like give us a little bit more of the behind the curtain stuff. And I feel like you get that here from Byrne. I don't know if he's like intentionally trying to add layers. maybe Because was he originally trying to do a third one? Was that the story? And then he kind of... There was there has been talks and I just you know that there was the idea that apparently Robin was going to come into play. Uh, there was talks about who the actual you know that the scarecrow might be, whatever. And it was weird because I think I think that you know he somewhat wanted to do one, but was a little iffy. And what I think is the best thing about that is the fact that apparently they offered. Uh, Michael Keaton $15 million to do Batman Forever and he turned it down uh, because of the fact that he said that the script was terrible um, and he wanted to work with, with Burton uh, on this. Um, you know, that's that's kind of uh, which which makes sense to me. I would have loved to see that third Batman film by him because I think we would have gotten Catwoman back. We would have gotten like maybe the Riddler or Scarecrow or something like that. We probably would have been introduced to uh, Robin as well who Marlon Wayans was apparently supposed to be doing that under the whole Tim, Tim Burton thing if he was going to do the third Interesting. Film. Um, but we didn't get also found out that Burgess Meredith was supposed to play uh, Tucker Cobblepot, the role that went to Paul Rubens, and actually had started filming, but he got sick. 
um, and had to get replaced, which I thought was a nice homage. Um, Fascinating. That would have been a delight. Yeah. I got to ask, what do you think about this movie? And it, it's, it struck me then as a almost 14-year-old teenager, and it really strikes me now about how overtly sexual this movie is in some ways. Um, and really, especially with like Catwoman's suit, is clearly like BDSM. BDSM. You know, and she's got with the bits. heels. Yeah, with the Absolutely. heels. Absolutely. There's, there's all these like double entendres. And it's an interesting commentary, I think, on, on you know, misogyny too, because I mean, Shrek literally pushes uh, Selena Kyle out the window. That's uh, what's interesting the whole Shrek angle. Because mm-hmm. without him, then you're like, what are they trying to say here? And I'm curious to see what, and I don't know the research on this, I'm curious to see what Burton was going for with this i like your theory that that with penguin like hey like they sat down him and devito and said hey look just go for it if you've got ideas bring them to the table i'm game we got to really flesh this puppy out let's bring it we're on stage here let's let's showcase right i have to think it was a similar conversation with uh with michelle pfeiffer but i'm i'm unsure of where like I'm, this is one of those things where i kind of need to know where the i know we talk about this a lot mm-hmm. Where, what like what was his intention really here? Because is it a case of like, and I hate to say it, but is it a dude like a dude's directing and maybe that that's how he gets his rocks? Is it this, is there that element, or is he just like, no, no, this is female empowerment at its finest? Like, I'm gonna I, hold, I'm gonna have her hold the power, and yeah. by having that power, it's not just force and violence, but also sexuality and sensuality and if i have this character wielding all these then that's the ultimate power and how what better way to do that than to have this beautiful woman who's also smart even Mm -hmm. though she's got a lot of like it seems like the l's have been piling up lately which we know when we see her apartment but man once she gets on that suit it's kind of like somebody they're a different person it's a different personality it's therapy in a Mm -hmm. sense there's that that mystery there when she's like that. I mean, Pfeiffer really brings it in this role. Yeah, I think it's in some ways the sexuality is prurient, but not necessarily graphic. Obviously, there's only so much you could do with being PG-13. And I like when they but, hold back a little bit like that. Like, I know you and I, I'm in agreement with you, and you pointed out great where it's like, yeah, we need more like erotic like, thrillers. Yeah, erotic like real, thrillers. Like, you know, stuff from... A fatal attraction and basic instinct and stuff like that. that or now that, it's like they just get goofy. Now they just get, it, you know, right. Something with some good, good old school fashion passion. You don't just have to like, Hey, let's just have somebody take off their shirt. And that's considered, you know, yeah. sexy or whatever. Stupid, like 12 year old boy jokes here. It's not like that. I think it's like, there's, she's moving a certain way. There's that feline sexuality, which there's a fluidity with the way cats move. And I feel like she's trying to both do that, but also be this almost, it almost seems like she's on ecstasy or something she's when playful. she puts on that suit. Yeah. Playful like he, and definitely trying to seduce. Like even when she's like suddenly starts in, I love it when she's in the, uh, the store or the, uh, the Shrek's department store and she like starts skipping with her whip. Like she's doing Trump rope. That's awesome. Um, that's Or then when the fact that she like, is those two bodyguards who take out both those guns. It's almost like a cat playing with its food. Yeah. Uh, and, but I, to, to get to your point about, you know, what was the intention here with, with Tim Burton is, you know, is, is it being a dude and whatnot? And I think it's kind of both 
Because if you look at, and I'm not really not saying, and I'm, I, listen, I'm not saying anything here that already hasn't been said in terms of critical analysis of this movie. But if you look at the at the arc of Catwoman as a character, she's marginalized by the central male male character. Strat pushes her out of window. The Penguin tries to kill her when he spurns his advances. Batman tries to capture her, um, and in order, to, especially after the Strat incident, you know she's trying to faction like a, a regain a sense of order or sanity or power and she fashions this suit and a whole kind of different personality so she can take her power back when she feels has been marginalized by these men um and you know i told you about the idea we, we talked a little bit about you know her rejecting that choice of, of batman saying you know that she couldn't just she you know i'd love to live with you like in a fairy tale but i couldn't live with yourself um she's not a, she's abandoning in the revenge because at this point in her psychology, to 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 make the choice to go with Bruce and Batman, it's basically like surrendering Batman and allowing allowing yet another man to control her. And I think that she couldn't get past that, even though I don't think that that's she's so caught up in that moment that I don't think that she she can't she's not really listening to what Bruce is saying because he keeps saying the word together, right? And we. That's not somebody who's trying to control somebody else, but she, I think she sees it in such that way that she's just not able to make that choice. Um, but yeah, this is, is, this is definitely somebody who's taken, who's been beaten over the head with misogyny at every turn and taken back to power in a very violent, um, it, I mean, just her being the secretary for sure just her being this like this lowly secretary and how she's treated that's definitely a commentary too right it's like this Mm -hmm. is just the per this is just the role that she's paid for as opposed to being like an actual human just kind of the way they like treat her and brush her off um but correct me if i'm wrong isn't one of the comic book tropes of catwoman isn't that kind of like the selena kyle thing is that she's walking this tightrope between yes she she goes back morality immorality like this this anti-hero versus like a villain right uh, because i mean if you look through the course of the comics you know she is a cat bird you know she really right. all kinds of jewelry but there are times that she does actually go out and assist you know bruce and and, and batman um so it's 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 a it's a it there's not an it's not an obvious villain story here and i i hesitate to even call her a villain in this she's almost like an anti-hero somebody that has just gotten pushed too far and is trying to reassert her own sense of agency in, in a lot of ways and it's it's fun the one line that really stood out to me uh is is the fact that this one line that shrek says is there's no such you know he's, he's talking about this whole idea it's it's obviously it's metaphorical right it's it's obviously metaphorical he's trying to build this power plant that he's supposed to provide other people but really it's it's not a power plant it's a it's a capacitor that he so he can gain more power and he even says at one point there's no such thing as too much power if my life has any has has a meaning that's the meaning and shit has things changed in 30 years for the wealthy and powerful i mean it's like it's like somebody when they were 14 that's a billionaire now looked at that movie and said yeah that's the way to live my life i think I'm just going to go with that. Isn't it so fun to just stick it to the rich, though, in movies, right? Sometimes it's hard to do in real life. It's a delight on film. What are some memorable images? When you think Batman Returns, like, what do you think of from the movie? What are some, are there certain shots 
that, yes, that jump out at you? The one shot that I still think is one of the greatest shots in the history of cinema, I don't care what's your genre, is when, you know, standing the, mayor up. Said, the mayor says, you know, what are you waiting for? The signal. And you see him stand up. Uh, you know, Bruce is is in his in his in the way manner. He stands up, and the bat symbol is behind him. And it's dark inside, no and lights. That, that's that's the thing that that stands out to me. The interaction between the, the meeting between um, Penguin and Max for the first time, uh, where it was it's it's just like him kind of revealing his 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 secrets more and more. And I love that even it's like I believe the word you're looking for is. <laughs> that was a, that's an awesome line. The other thing that really I noticed this time too is that obviously Shadow and got the dark gargoyles, you know, white and black motifs are very big in this movie, right? But what's but it makes the things that are colorful really really stand out. Like the reds are very red, the greens are very green. Um. And I think that's by design. Do I necessarily know uh, the reasons behind it? It's almost like a counter to this gothic, you know, gothic nature with like almost this hyper realistic or hyper color. That kind of stuck out to me. Um, the Batman uh, flying, actually, you know, that where he's on the ledge and he puts the you know, actual like wings up. Um, that that's a uh, that sprints out to me. And on, uh, ironically, too, like the title credits, because when Batman returns, the title is put up, it unveils like the opening of Bat's Wings. Yes. Which, which I, I, I never forgot about. I forgot about I, that. I never really made the connection to that until this, this last, this, this last watch. And again, Batman Returns is kind of one of those movies that emphasizes the visual medium. Uh, it, the, a lot of the story is told through the, the, you know, just how shots are framed, what is chosen to be in that shot, you know, the the shading the images, because there's not a lot of, you know, there, there aren't any long speeches here. There's not a lot of, a lot of soliloquies. There's almost an absence of, of dialogue in some ways. And that, I mean, that's antithetical almost to comic book films in some ways. Now, the reason why I brought up the uh, the memorable images is, especially in some of these films, I always think about at the end of the day, it's like, regardless of special effects, you got a square, right? What are you filming that frame with? What are you filling that square with? And I feel like Burton does a nice job in the last one and then with this one of really kind of creating a lot of memorable images that, for me, have like stuck around. And some of them I actually forgot until I rewatched this. Um, there were certain like back and forth with him and Catwoman, Penguin, of course, definitely Batman. Like you brought up the big one where he stands up matched with the Elfman score that that gets you pumped. There's a lot of cool Batman shots where like he's framed from like a very like, hey, he's clearly the hero type mm -hmm. of angle. Right. Even some of the shading where like there's lights on his eyes that you can see. Yeah, you can have all the special effects in the world. But man, if you can't create that like memorable image mm -hmm. or string a bunch of images together to create a world. The other image that I thought of too was Oswald Cobblepot finding his parents in the cemetery. Yeah. There's just something indelible about that because here's the thing. 
You get a lot of fleshed out character with him in this. You, you do, and you you at least initially find him empathetic. Yeah, right. Because it's a guy who is basically, I mean, how despicable that your rich parents or that any parents would just toss you into a sewer, um, and that you you need to find a way to ascend. And but yet, yet at the same time, you got to remember, no, he's he's literally evil. Look at the things he was showing Max, right. the intensity in. But somehow, Danny DeVito is able to make it so that he's somewhat empathetic, and, and that's even. But again, that's all the public sees to start with, to the fact that even Bruce Wayne is tricked by that. It's like, you know, his parents, I hope he finds them. You know, th- there's, there, there's, there's that aspect. And the, the, the Danny DeVito's performance this is just kind of indomitable in, in, in some ways for me. Um, and I feel like I appreciate this film a lot more than I did when I was a kid because it was just so not what I was expecting in a Batman sequel, I guess. Um, but I think you've got to credit some real key things happening in the late 80s and in the early 90s about how the, the fundamental shift in Batman in comic books and culture, you know, as it starts in 86 with the Dark Knight Returns and Frank Miller, it, a couple of years later, you get Batman as this darker version that's not campy. Then we have the introduction of, um, you know, when we get Batman Returns, we have the introduction of the Batman animated series. And the next thing you know, things are kind of off to the races. So there's that's almost that perfect section of about five or six years, which I think changed the landscape for the better of what Batman could be and maybe should be. What else you got on the rewatch here? I'm tapped out. Yeah, I mean, I just I can't. I think I think the biggest takeaway I can have from this is just how many different ways you can you can appreciate this thing on so many different levels. Um, you know, you can. You can look at the magnificent, you know, costume and set design. You can look at the score. You can look at the actual, you know, the underlying themes that are there. You can look at the minimalist, you know, screenplay in terms of, of dialogue. You can look at some of the campiness things that, you know, that make it funny. Like, again, it's self-referential. Like, even that point where where Penguin's getting, like, the stuff thrown at him, right? Where, where people realize, you know, Batman reveals that he was just scamming everyone. He's like, why does everyone bring eggs and tomatoes to his speech? And you're like, yeah, why, what is that? What is up with that? You know, this why is, do not, I get such a kick out of him right, rising through the sewer on that like duck duck thing? Yeah. Like, why do get I get it. so much of a kick? Out get of it, that? duck. <laughs> yeah, but I think that I think the biggest takeaway from this is how much you can appreciate this movie from so many different levels. Um, and I think in some ways, how blessed we are that Tim Burton gifted us with his version of Batman and, and the way that he told it the story that he wanted to tell unadulterated, especially in that second one. Um, and I think that there's just a lot to be thankful for uh, in this season. Yeah. Though on paper, movies like this, there's so much to bitch about we can complain about and point out, oh, that's not plausible, all that stuff. It's nice to kind of just toss that away for a moment and live in this world for two hours and then exit. We don't have to overthink, even though we've been yapping about this. We don't have to overthink what every little thing means. Whereas I, f- I feel like sometimes I, we, we kind of do that a lot now, just as society, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you can see that with like the Twitter discourse and social media <laughs> discourse. But this is like that era still where it's you can go, you go have a good time for two hours. And of, of course, if you're movie buffs like us, you can pluck little things out. But for the most part, you can enjoy it. You live in the world, and then you exit the world. No questions asked. No PTSD. 
holy cow, did that scene or that scene stick with me 20 years from now? You could just go and enjoy it. Yeah. Right. And I feel like that's not always the case anymore where I always have to question what every little thing means or does, is the director accused of rape? You know, there's always yeah. something nowadays where then it was like there was almost a social little bit of a weird. Has, has social media has kind of ruined the mystery in some in some ways, you know, yeah, like when movies came out, then it was it was still a big deal. Like you'd read about it. Yes. In Premiere magazine or something like that. But you get a couple of trailers and then like that's it. And then mm -hmm. they roll it out on Entertainment Tonight and Michelle Pfeiffer and everybody's doing the everybody's doing the, the, the press tour. Yeah, yeah, they're doing the press tour. So there's still mystery. And then it comes out and you're kind of like kind of blows you away. But you're not constantly talking about like when's the next one coming out. Mm -hmm. Right. Where we're like we're getting these release dates all the time. Hey, yeah. here's the here's the how lineup for Marvel that? through 2030. It's like how much I'm just trying to get through Christmas. Story? <laughs> right right just worry about the dang story like we don't have to i don't know it's just it's a nice little like blast from the past i think that's our it's increasing inability i'm not trying to get out of rant here but our increasing inability to focus on what's going on that we're just right. we're just so concerned about okay what's the next three films from now you know what's the you know where we're, we're completely lost about watching maybe this spectacular movie right in, in front of us I really think you're going to see a dynamic shift in the landscape in terms of what people are going to like and love and be attracted to in the in the next couple of years. You're going to see some huge shakeups, and I think it's going to be better. Now for the Liam McCurdy Award, named for the lovable drunk imperious from 1985's Lady Hawk, also starring Michelle Pfeiffer. This award goes to the character we'd most like to have as a neighbor in real life, Corey. Who do you like in Batman Returns? You know, I think I might have to go with Alfred, there's a wholesomeness to him and a fatherliness, a paternal nature to him that I, I really, really like. And uh, yeah, I think I just I would I would go with Alfred. Plus, I've never had a butler, so that'd be interesting. You're like, <laughs> oh come on, like you didn't have one in your last place. Yeah. Oh sure. I think I'm going Selena Kyle here. I always tend to empathize with folks who I think are going through a lot, mm -hmm. and I think like, man, she's had a rough patch of it here. She lived next door. She could hang out with us. She comes over for picnics. We take the dog for a walk. You know, maybe we introduce her to a single friend that we have. And boom, we turn Selena Kyle's life around. She seemed like good people. Before getting, over here. I can save her. <laughs> before kicked in the face a bunch of times and, you know, pushed off a building too. So yeah. I'm weirdly going with Selena Kyle. And of course, she would enjoy our two cats. Yes, there you go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time once again for Luke and Corey's recommendations. This can be anything. It can be books, can be movies, can be music, can be a sunrise, a sunset, a dance, a joke, a lyric. Anything and everything is up for grabs. Mr. Luke Mayo, what are some of your recommendations this week? Pretty sure I recommended this in uh, holidays past, but going to do it again this year because we didn't go there last year at least. Thank you, Corey. <laughs> Wegmans. No. George Eastman House, the gingerbread display thing that they have going on a lot of cool creations i posted one on our movie chumps twitter page that that we got the biggest kick out of which was a willy wonka one they had a bunch of the oh, characters from the uh the gene the uh gene wilder version including the little like cowboy kid you know who wants to be on tv and then there's like the miniaturized version on the screen they even did that out of like candy somehow so it's just Super cool. It's a great way to kind of tour the Eastman house. There's a lot of like film stuff that you can check out. There's always like photo displays too. So it's like, okay, you pay for this one thing and it's like a treasure hunt or what do you call it? Not a treasure hunt, but a, yeah, 
scavenger hunt where you got to figure out like which house there's a play on words. There's a little slogan, which word, which house do they mean when they say this? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's nice just to explore and they redid part of the house. And then you also get the Philip Seymour Hoffman statue, which is right outside. So for us film buffs, that's cool to see. So I recommend going over to the George Eastman okay. house. The gingerbread display thing is going on, I think, through Christmas, at least next couple of weeks. So go check it out. It's, it's a good time. Nice. All right. My first recommendation is going to be the Furiosa trailer. Oh, uh, this, so good. This dropped last week and or just this past weekend. Oh, my God. My brain, my brain was melted. Put me right back into the you know, the Mad Max Fury Road world. Nobody does it like George Miller, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. I mean, how much more can we say about this this woman? I mean, she looks fantastic. Uh, you know, Chris Hemsworth looks like he's diving right in uh, with his role. His character's name is Dementis with that fake nose. And um, I love the, the thing oh, that people cool. don't talk about enough is the fact that all Mad Max films have a certain level of absurdity to them that they just kind of go for. I mean, for Jesus, for God's sake, you know, Road Warrior has some has one dude wearing he was flexing his muscles and wearing a hockey mask, and the other guy's got these giant shoulder pads with spikes on. Yeah. So there's that level of absurdity. It looks like it's a nice, uh, like it's a nice balance of practical effects, you know. And 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 I I just am I am so excited for this thing. And I'm telling you right now, one of the things that I think we talked about when we did the Bad Max Fury Road podcast is that it. It kind of broke even. It didn't really make a ton of money. Really? It did not make a ton of money. I Because it was so expensive, probably, right? Right. It was like $150 million, and I think it made 300 something like that, worldwide. But here's the thing. I think the landscape has changed so much in the last couple of years, and what people are interested in and looking for, that I think this movie is going to make a buck ton of money next year. I would, I would not be shocked if this goes northwards of $800 million. I think people are really going to turn out in droves for this one. I really, really believe that. I think the trailer was better than the one for Fury Road, Mm. to be honest. I didn't realize how pumped I was going to be for Because, look, I was coming into it. I'm excited for the movie. But it's like when you're not around it in a while, you're kind of like, eh. You know what I mean? It's kind of like when Game of Thrones isn't on. You're kind of like, eh, I can wait another, like, six months for the next season but then you see like a trailer or something and you're, and you're like, like oh, oh shit. i now i can't wait now i want to go rewatch. so yeah the trailer comes out i'm like yeah let me check it out let's see what they bring and then i was like whoa now i gotta go watch rewatch all the freaking films one thing in the discourse that i haven't been seeing or hearing or whatever about this trailer is there's a shit ton of cool stuff that he's like reimagining from the road warrior which is like depending on the day is like top 10 action film for me. Oh. I love that freaking movie. I think it's a, such a, it's, it's a weird masterpiece for me. The whole like gas land, mm-hmm. like palace Bullet or whatever. Town. Yeah. Like that whole place that's, that's in this one. So it looks yeah. like they're going to like revisit that. There's also like that feral kid. I think you see in a couple shots who's oh, a really? road warrior who's almost like been raised by, that's the, I don't know what he's got. That's like the, the great boomerang. thing I like about George Miller is the fact that he doesn't give a shit about the canon or about, about time frames or all that stuff. Right. Like it's the world that's Mad Max is a fever dream anyway. So let's right. just treat it like that. I'm, fuck. I don't. Yeah. I'm all for that. 
Yeah, that's what had me really interested about this trailer. It's like, oh, he's got a bunch of shit from Road Warrior in here. And yeah. I, you know, I feel like that's, there's probably going to be a little bit of those, um, whatchamacallit, there's going to be some of those tie-ins, I think, more yeah. so than what we thought coming in. So, yeah. cool recommendation. My next recommendation, a uh, really cool book I discovered accidentally at the library going through the film section, uh, A Short History of film there's been like multiple editions over this but it's really cool it's not like a super super heavy incredibly detailed like description of film from like the early inventions in the 1900s to where we are now but it's a good like kind of um you know brush strokes type of thing like a, a 101 film 101 so if you're interested in like film motion pictures how they came to be why certain films have kind of stood out um, different trends and like the industry. There's a lot of stuff that even for film buffs, it's like, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Or I never really thought about that before. And this uh, book kind of brings it to life. So it's called a short history of film by Wheeler, Winston Dixon and Gwendolyn, Audrey Foster, super cool book at your local library or on Amazon. Nice. Uh, next book I would recommend is the running grave by Robert Galbraith who is actually the pseudonym for J.K. Rowling. Um, it's her series of hard crime fiction novels that she writes, uh, which about a, a detective agency run by Cormoran Strike and his partner, Robin Ellicott. I think this is the seventh book in the series right now. Um, but they, it, they are just so well done. The chemistry between these two characters is so great. It's funny, it's deep, it's interesting. And then this one's really cool because the, the main female character in the Robin actually goes undercover in like a kind of cult-like church that's somewhat like um, Scientology to see if she, because she's they've been hired by a client to see if they can find somebody to get him out. Um, but it's, it's these are excellent books. Um, if you've never had a chance to read any of the Cormoran Strike novels um, by Robert Gilbraith, uh, check it out. The first one's called Cuckoo's Calling. Um, and they and she, uh, Jacob Rowley puts one out, I think, every two or three years or so, and they're just excellent. So really check that out if you can, The Running Grave by Robert Gilbraith. My next recommendation is heading down to the Rochester Public Market, especially for the whole, like, holiday Sundays or day holidays at the market, whatever the hell they, t- they title it nowadays. But um, we went there this past Sunday. It was a delight. I'm a big people watcher, one of my favorite sports. This was like going to Magic Kingdom. There's just a <laughs> lot of cool characters and people and outfits, and you bump into people you know, people you think you know, um, some cool eateries and, and, and vendors set up, of course, like any market, but there's just so many at the Rochester one. And we've got ourselves some empanadas, so it's kind of like a half recommendation also for Juan and Maria's empanada place there. There's a couple other eateries like right next to those. We were surprised by we were looking at like my wife actually lois was looking at some of the the uh expenditures if you will over the last like couple weeks or so and we got a kick out of the fact that we got four coffees like before we left at this one place we spent more on those four coffees than we did for like lunch at some of those places we just thought that was odd because it's like they're coffees but you know how it goes you get like a freaking mocha latte or something and it's like six or seven bucks. But um, yeah, there's just a lot. Of, it's a feast for the senses down there. Nice little family atmosphere. So go check out the Rochester Public Market. Nice. My next recommendation is going to be a documentary that just dropped on Disney Plus called Timeless Heroes, Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford. Uh, 
Nice. Uh, just all about kind of his career, how he came to be Indiana Jones, why the character means so much to him, you know, getting some interesting interviews, but, you know, on his backstory being, you know, a carpenter and had never really expected him to be a leading man. And, uh, you know, interviews with Kathy Kennedy, with Steven Spielberg, with George Lucas, you know, with Kiki Kwan, you know, all the different kind of people that have surrounded him that have been part of Indiana Jones. Um, and if you're an Indiana Jones fan, and if you're a Harrison Ford fan, you really need to check it out. It's really, really good. I dig it. I dug it a lot. I'm out of Rex. All right. I got two more. Next is a television show on Max that my wife and I started watching called Bookie. It's the latest uh, comedy from uh, Chuck Lorre, um, uh, you know, who's 12 or two and a half men fame, um, and also from uh, Nick Bakai. And it stars uh, Sebastian Maniscalco. You might know him. He's a famous stand-up comedian. It's Danny's bookie and Omar Dorsey's Ray, who's his partner. Um, it's basically about him be, trying to survive as a veteran sports bookie in uh, during legal where legalization of sports gambling might might be happening. Also, Jorge uh, Garcia Hurley from uh, uh, Lost is in this. Um, is is it's it's uh, he's really good. So I highly recommend that one, bookie. Uh, it's only a couple episodes out, but it's on Max right now. And the last one I want to recommend is, this happens every year, and I love it when it comes out, is Variety is doing their Actors on Actors session, where they select, I think it's like 18 actors, and they pair them up together, and they talk to each other about their specific films that are kind of in the zeitgeist that year for the Hollywood season. And there's, I think there's only been two released yet. I just watched, there's two that I watched the one with Margot Robbie and Killian Murphy, which is interesting. But the most dynamic one, the most interesting one to me so far, even though there's only two, was Mark Ruffalo and, and uh, Robert Downey Jr., who've known each other for decades. Um, and there was a, there was a point of something that, uh, a little dialogue thing happened between them that really struck me because it made me think of you. It made me think of Mike Pagano. It made me think of Corey. It made me think of my friend Andy. It made me think of my friend Boma or John Boma in terms of who they are as people and how they see themselves as people. And, and Mark Ruffalo was talking, and he's talking about the role that he just took um, for uh, in, in, in Oppenheimer and playing that role. And he says, you know, you don't need to do that. He says, you have everything, Robert. You know, you don't need to do that. And Robert Downey Jr. says, what a terrible place to be. And Mark Ruffalo says, what do you mean? He's like, to quote, unquote, if it's true to be said about any of us to have everything, is that a sense of completion? And also convincing myself, well, I should be perfectly happy because I have everything. And yet you go, like, we know where the work is that's left to be done. I know those little corners that I sweep the dust into that I spend a lot of time making sure nobody sees. And I know if not the defects, then the things I haven't really looked at. And I mentioned everybody that I just mentioned because I feel like everyone, you're the type of people that, they're the type of people, my friends, that constantly see themselves as works in progress. And that just really struck me. What's interesting, too, is I didn't know is that before, he also talked about being in junior theater as well. Robert Downey Jr. did. He said, because he actually kind of had to get back into that mindset when he was so wild to me. Yeah, because he said, I need to go back to like when I was doing theater, like one act plays. And he said it was so interesting because when, Christopher Nolan had called me. He said, I'd already been obsessed for five to seven years about the Cold War um, and about reading as much as I could, investigating as much as I could about the era. So I knew about Oppenheimer. I knew about Strauss. So that was kind of kismet. But what I did know, too, about how this 
I can't remember if we talked about how even the Oppenheimer movie came about. Is the fact that when Tenet wrapped, Robert Pattinson, as a gift, gave Christopher Nolan letters, like J. Robert Oppenheimer's letters that he'd written, some letters that he'd written, that got Nolan interested in the topic and ended up leading towards the actual Oppenheimer movie. Like a killing so, plant in the seed. No, not that Robert Pattinson was. Oh, not yeah, I'm so, sorry, sorry. Yeah. But the fact that that organically came out like that was just so fascinating to me. But uh, if you got a chance, go watch it. The variety of actors on actors is really and that's not a lot of time between Ten and Oppenheimer. So it's amazing to think like Nolan, you know, yeah. slapped that shit together, right? Yep. Bananas. Next week, one of my top 10 films, depending on the day, as we continue to shine the spotlight on Tim Burton movies. Yes. Of late, he has been a man without a pod, but Corey Mosher Kesselring will be returning next week as we do 1986's Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which was Tim Burton's first full film. He'd done Frank and Weenie's short. Um, I, I am interested in revisiting this one because I'll be honest, I don't think I've seen this movie in 25 years. I, You're I, in it, for a treat, man. It'll it's be nonstop and bullshit. I, and I watched it all the time when I was a kid. Like oh, okay. Yeah. But I can't wait to revisit this. I'm really excited as we, uh, we continue in quest on with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Your boy Odd Job from freaking uh, Goldfinger. Yeah. Yeah, I almost said Goldeneye. Odd Job from Goldfinger. Luke Mayo, Corey Cook, sophisticates, gentlemen of leisure. Just a couple really swell fellas. We will see you, fellow chumps, next week. And remember, kids, all movie experiences are subjective. Your mileage may vary.